what is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Law and promise. Works and faith. Judaism and Christianity. Quite simply, the difference is Christ. And that's why Paul is so concerned about Christians slipping back into the law. To do so is to nullify what Christ did on the cross, to make his death a needless gesture. Paul is very concerned about anything that depreciates Christ, who he is, or what he's done. Anything that takes him out of the picture, that takes him off center stage, is anathema to Paul. Not only because Christ belongs there, but because if we remove Christ from his rightful place in our lives, we lose our salvation. Well, obviously, Paul wants Christ to be foremost in our minds. And that becomes very evident in our text for today. In seven verses, he specifically mentions Christ six times. And we discover five major thoughts about Christ and our relationship to him in those seven verses. So let's focus on Christ this morning as highlighted in Galatians 3, 23. The first thing Paul tells us is that the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ, that by it we have been led to Christ. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now, before faith came is a little misleading. It sounds as if faith is something new, that there was a time when faith did not exist. But Paul has made it abundantly clear that Abraham was justified by faith. In fact, all who come or who have ever come to God, come on the basis of faith, by trusting in him, by trusting his word and his promises. That's always been the case. So faith is nothing new. The problem is that the translators left out a little article. It actually says, before the faith, The word faith isn't being used in the subjective sense of our faith, our trust, but in the objective sense, the object of our faith, the focus of our faith, the embodiment of the promises, and that, of course, is Jesus. Paul is saying that before Christ came, believers, those who had faith in God were kept in custody under the law. Literally, it says we were under law, we were guarded. Now, that can indicate restrictive custody, a prisoner who's locked up because of a crime, 
or protective custody, someone being kept safe from harm. And both ideas actually come into play here. Paul says that they were being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. They were in custody and didn't have access to the faith. But since we know the faith was coming, and when it came, it would bring pardon, what we have here is a picture of believers being held in custody, awaiting pardon. Now, they were guilty of transgressing the law and deserved to be in custody, but the law, while restricting them, was actually protecting them. It was keeping them from being destroyed by lawlessness, all the while holding out the promise of a coming pardon. Now, they didn't yet have access to the faith, but they did have faith that God was going to do something to set them free, which he did when the object of their faith, the Messiah, came. So the law kept them in custody until Christ came. And Paul says the law acted as a tutor to lead them to Christ. Now, some translations say school teacher, but that's really not the thought here. A tutor in Roman society was a trusted servant, given responsibility to oversee the moral welfare of boys between the ages of 6 and 16. It was the tutor's responsibility to escort him to school, protect him from danger, and keep him from temptation. And he did so until the boy became a man and had hopefully developed the character to make wise decisions on his own. Now, perhaps a better word for us would be nanny or governess, someone like Maria in The Sound of Music, someone charged with the responsibility of overseeing the development of children. The law was intended to be a nanny for the Jews, to keep them safe, and to lead them to Christ, the one through whom they would find forgiveness and be justified in God's eyes. The one who could cancel out their death of sin, pardon them, and set them free from the law. The law did that for Jews of faith, and it does the same for us today. It does so by revealing the character of God and by exposing our sinfulness. You know, before anyone will accept what Christ has to offer, he must be made aware of his need. So it's imperative that we still teach the demands of the law, the nature of sin, and coming judgment. If people don't understand that they are sinners, cut off from a holy God, they will never sense a need to be saved. And it's the law that leads us to Christ and to faith in him. Let's read on. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now again, the translators left out the article. Now that the faith 
has come. Now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the tutor, no longer under the law. That is not to say, however, that the law has no place in our life after becoming a Christian. It still reveals to us the mind of God on specific matters. It tells us what's right and wrong and how to order our lives and how to structure society. The law is extremely important for relationships between men, but it is not the means through which a relationship is established with God or maintained with God. We cannot earn a relationship with God or maintain one through the law because the demands of the law are absolute, absolute obedience in every detail, and those demands are simply too great for us. The law, however, is still a valuable guide for life, and we respect it. We try to abide by the things it taught us the same way we would respect a nanny that raised us and loved us. We wouldn't just forget everything she taught us and did for us just because we were no longer under her authority. Now, I did not have a nanny, so I can't speak from personal experience here, but my best friend did. And he held Minerva, an amazing woman, in high regard even after she ceased being his nanny. So it is with the law. We love it and respect it and want to obey it. But we realize that our relationship with God is not dependent upon perfectly obeying its demands. We're not earning a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We have been given one through faith in His Son. In fact, we became sons of God through faith in his son by trusting in him and allowing him to make us part of the family of God by trusting him to make us acceptable to the father. Again, the law still tells us how to please our father and we strive to do so, but we know our relationship does not depend on pleasing him all the time fail him, he'll forgive us as long as we love him and are trusting in his son to keep us in a good relationship with him. As long as we have faith in Christ, we are sons of God and our father will not cast us out. I do notice that Paul says we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That sonship comes through faith in Jesus. That means it is not automatic. That not everyone is in a family relationship with God. Contrary to a common assumption, God is not everyone's heavenly father. He is everyone's creator. But we enter into a family relationship with him through faith in his son. Sin cuts everyone off from a relationship with God and it is only through Christ that anyone can be adopted back 
into his family. Not only is our relationship with God dependent upon faith in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, Paul says we will clothe ourselves with him. Verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now Paul's not arguing for the necessity of baptism here, so I won't either. He's merely stating a fact. All who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Now, while some do insist that being baptized into Christ has nothing to do with water baptism, I'm convinced that comes from a preconceived prejudice against baptism. I think it's obvious Paul is talking about water baptism here. And most commentators agree. Paul is saying that when we express our faith in Christ by being baptized, by being immersed into him, we clothe ourselves with Christ. We cover ourselves with him. We take off an old garment and put on a new one. Isaiah makes it very clear that we do have an old garment we need to get rid of. He says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. What does that say about our unrighteous deeds? Obviously, it's time to change clothes, and Jesus makes that possible. When we are baptized into Christ, we are clothed with Christ. Our sin is washed away, and we are clothed in the purity of Christ. The wearing of white robes during baptism, and in some communities of faith after a baptism, symbolizes the cleansing that is or has taken place. We are clothed with Christ. So when God sees us, he sees his son. And that gives us the confidence we need to come before a holy God. When we come before him, he doesn't see us and our sin, he sees his son. And this is true of all who are in Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The law creates differences and distinctions, degrees of righteousness, at least in our eyes. It can cause the kind of thinking that says, I'm more righteous than you because I have obeyed more laws than you have. And I didn't break the big one like you did. You know, under law, we tend to compare and judge each other. But in Christ, we are all equal because we are all lawbreakers, sinners, saved by grace. 
When we realize that the only thing that makes us acceptable to God is our relationship with Christ, that he cleansed us and clothed us with himself, and that's what God sees, all distinctions are gone. There is no longer any difference between Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Our race, our social standing, our gender makes no difference to God. And they are not barriers to fellowship in his kingdom. Now, that's not to say those things are obliterated when we become Christians. We don't lose our ethnic heritage, our station in life, or our sex when we become Christians, and we don't disregard them. We still pay honor to whom honor is due. We respect those in positions of authority. We treat with deference those who are to be treated accordingly. We still open doors for women and protect our wives. But our differences are not handicaps before God, nor walls of division between us. We have become one in Christ, and we are on equal footing before God. We are there by grace, and he loves us equally. In fact, we now belong to Christ. Verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Our relationship with God is conditioned by only one thing, our relationship with his son. If we belong to Christ, we are sons of God and friends of God. And as such, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Belong to Christ means he owns us. We've given ourselves to him. He is our Lord, our master, our boss. And if we've given ourselves to him, in response to him giving himself for us, we are heirs according to promise. We have become friends of God like Abraham. And we've been given an eternal homeland promise of life in his presence forever. All of this is possible if we belong to Christ. And it is only possible if we belong to Christ. Everything depends on Christ. He is the difference Nothing else really matters. So do you belong to Christ? Have you been convicted of your sin? And has your need for forgiveness led you to Christ? And when led to him, did you express faith in him? Did you clothe yourself with him? 
through baptism? And did you become one in Christ with all the saints? Did you become a part of God's family and gain a sense of community with all of the people of God? All this is possible through Christ. And it can be yours. If you'll just give yourself to him, entrust yourself to him, Come to him. If you don't belong to Christ, let me assure you that he wants you so much that he died for you. And you can give yourself to him now and start living for him. Difference is Christ. What we do on Sunday morning means nothing if you have not given yourself to Christ. All your good behaviors, all your religious practices mean nothing if you've not given yourself to Christ. Don't be deceived. You can never earn a relationship with God. It can only be given to you as a gift made possible through his son. When you embrace that, you'll start living a life that honors him. Not to earn anything, just to say living for Jesus. That's our heart's desire. Let's stand and sing.